0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name is Melvin Morse, and I'm substituting uh, for Joseph uh, Varley. Uh, He's uh, ill today, so I'm going to substitute him uh, for him, and this is the uh, Joseph Varley Presents show. And we have an outstanding show for you. Today's show really is going to, uh, in one sentence, teach us how to unlock... The healing power of the near-death experience. Uh, in my opinion, we're going to learn um, how the, the practical aspects of accessing that uh, healing power, which the near-death experience teaches us that each one of us has a connection to. Um, uh, we're going to. Uh, uh, with me today is uh, Dr. Jeffrey Smith. Uh, he's a former uh, Navy fighter pilot. He underwent a uh, near-death experience as part of an experimental program in which the Navy actually induced near-death experiences, um, to try to understand, uh, uh, what, um, how pilots could survive, uh, uh, the tremendous G-forces, uh, that are inherent, uh, in the uh, aircraft that they fly. And so if people doubt the science of the near-death experience, uh, the United States government, uh, through a naval experimental program has documented them, uh, as being very real. Uh, he was transformed by his experience. He went on to be a family therapist, uh, got his PhD, uh, in psychology, and he's got a very busy practice in Vista, uh, California. Also, uh, we're gonna have Isabel Shafatan Saavedra. Did I get that right?
1: you got that right Melvin. <laughs> All right.
0: And uh, she uh, is uh a scientific medium. Uh she's got a book coming out uh, later this month uh called uh I Am Therefore I Think. And uh, you can get that uh, at Amazon, uh, of course. Um, but uh, she uh will tell us about uh what modern physics uh teaches us. About this, uh, universal consciousness that the, we all have, uh, links to, um and, uh, how, what mediumship has, uh, to do with all of this and, and uh, believe me, uh, it has a lot to do with it. Well, Dr. Smith, um I was hoping you could give us an overview of your practice and then kind of the, uh, innovative, uh, new, uh, you know, cutting edge type of therapies uh, that you're currently doing for, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, victims of abuse and such as that.
2: Absolutely. So just for the uh catching the listening audience up, um I think it'd be helpful to tie together the trauma therapy that I'm using eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR for short, that is a gold standard protocol therapy that the uh, VA recognizes as well as the American Psychiatric Association. They recognize that as the Tier 1 or gold standard for remediating uh, traumas, whether those are combat-related traumas for our veterans or whether those are childhood abuse traumas. Really, trauma is trauma. Uh, nevertheless, uh, EMDR is a way that opens up, um, opens the mind, it opens a connection. There's a connection, literally, that takes place that I'd like to link together with uh, remote viewing, with with prayer, with meditation, uh, certainly with some type of uh, past life review, or even some uh, psychic uh, viewing or reading, that all of those things that I've just mentioned, we're tapping into a signal line, we're touching some level of universal consciousness, the different way of describing it, and in each one of those disciplines have a different language, but nevertheless it's all tied together that seems to be uh we're not we're not doing different things we're really doing the same thing just a different way
0: and would you include mediumship uh in that uh you know we're going to hear from uh, Isabel later uh on that but uh would you include her as as tapping into this universal consciousness just to get another uh form of it another word absolutely. for it absolutely
2: absolutely absolutely
0: that so can be kind of confusing, and I'm glad to hear you, uh, explain it the way you have, because it's confusing to me. We have so many different terms for the same thing, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, what I'm familiar with, the near-death experience, where people contact or actually return to this universal consciousness at the point of death, but then we seem to have a lot of different terms for our connection with it, uh, uh, during our lifetime. Well well go on and uh you know, so so how are you using this in therapy?
2: Well, I've started learning the uh EMDR technique. It's been around about twenty five years now and it's you know collected a lot of great data to support the use for for putting people through that process to help them let go of experiences that they've had that are creating post traumatic stress disorder or showing up in ways where they're trying to self medicate through different substances or activities or whatnot. But the the interesting thing for me was when when we started using some of these other uh learning about what what are these other ways of touching God, touching this universal consciousness, um, it just occurred to me, my gosh, that's that's what I'm doing in my practice every day. I get this 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 experience, this energy, this frequency is what we're touching every day, and in some ways, it's it's creating a truth. It's creating a a healing of sorts that allows people to feel lighter, to to clear up what we call unfinished business, to let go of the past, and let them let them move on with their life. Uh, I took a step forward in the last couple of years by realizing that if we can take people back in time to their childhood and clear up childhood traumas. Or we could take a, a combat vet back six months or a year in the past and help them make amends with, uh, experiences that they've had. It occurred to me one day that we could also perhaps go back to a past life and deal with issues that we may have some kind of a psychic residue that follows us into this life. And I've been having a lot of fun with that as well as, uh, you know, a lot of people have benefited from being open to exploring the possibilities there. So it's been really fascinating. The last couple of years, has just been really amazing.
0: You know, I want to I frame this in, in different language. Um, first of all, I'm so thrilled that this kind of information is no longer confined to the New Age movement, but, you know, we're getting stuff that's uh, uh, validated by the Veterans Administration, uh we're hearing from uh a navy uh veteran uh, such as yourself a former fighter pilot uh using these uh, very uh advanced uh, and, and validated techniques but we're we're talking about then a soldier who's combat uh come back from um combat in Afghanistan or in Iraq maybe addicted to heroin maybe going through uh, uh domestic violence uh, as he struggles to deal with his own post traumatic stress disorder. I mean, these are the kinds of uh, stories that we're reading about every day in the newspaper. And, and, uh, I mean, this is the type of, of, of client that you're working with. Are, am I understanding that correctly?
2: Absolutely, yes.
0: And that, so you're doing something, I mean, can you give us an example of, you know, you know, I mean, uh, heroin addiction, uh, we think of that as, as something that needs to be treated, but if we're not treating the underlying trauma, then uh, the, you know we can't treat the addiction. And yet, uh, my understanding from talking with you is if we treat the underlying uh, trauma, then the addiction just fades away. Uh, have I understood that correctly?
2: that That has been my experience as well as many of my colleagues who are using EMDR therapy
0: and can you can you uh, illustrate this do you have a you know a, a, a case that comes to mind
2: absolutely melvin uh, there's a uh, an active duty sergeant major marine corps sergeant major that i had the pleasure of working with about a year ago and i do have his permission although nobody will ever meet him so there's no issues with regard to divulging confidential information but nevertheless because he's a leader and wants other people to uh, benefit from the experiences he's had he has in fact given me permission to loosely talk about uh his experience um, He was uh very very troubled with uh marines that he was in charge of that lost their life in Afghanistan that he personally felt responsible for uh leaving them behind and them dying and then he really got into alcoholism to the point where it was negatively affecting his life uh, at work, as well as relationally uh, with uh, separation uh, from his wife that he'd been with for quite some time. So on top of feeling responsible for what he considered his own negligence, which really wasn't, but that that was the spin he was putting on it, uh, he had also been called upon to take the lives of, of many of the uh, combatants that he was facing. And, as a result of that, felt very guilty for ending what in his words many lives and we're we're talking probably somewhere between maybe twenty twenty to thirty people wow so so there was a lot of weight that he was carrying around uh in in doing this protocol that I've explored um although I've used the term. EMDR, I don't think it would be fair uh, to the EMDR Institute to, to really say that that's exactly what I'm doing. It's a hybrid now of that, because we are uh, looking at making contact, uh, afterlife contact with uh, those Marines that he felt responsible for, and we've also had afterlife contact with the human beings that he took their life. So I'm just going to pause for a moment and let let that sneak in that we're creating in the office an afterlife connection between the patient I'm working with and either, in this case, the person that that died that was a U.S. Marine or people that were killed that were combatants. And they're showing up in, in the mind uh, in this energetic form, and they're not upset. They're not angry. They're not frustrated, bitter, resentful. They're showing up with a hello, um, I'm okay. Uh I don't harbor any resentment toward you. And and you know, there's there's always tears that occur. There's this this literally you can feel there's an energetic shift that happens in the office that you I know that in some way it, whether there's a temperature change or there's a It's just something that's taking place that you can sense that love is showing up, or I don't, that's what I call it. I don't, I don't know what that is, but it's a form of healing. And so you take somebody through, uh, you know, a story of, okay, well, I lost this Marine and I felt responsible here, and then he shows up and he says, hey, you don't have to feel sorry for me anymore. I don't hold you responsible. It's, that was my fate or my destiny or whatever it is. And then that's let go. And so the guilt leads. oftentimes people will stay entrenched in their guilt as a way to memorialize their connection with the departed loved one or the departed person that they felt responsible for. And when they can see that there's no longer any reason, uh, one, that they can contact them now. We, we can talk about that perhaps if you'll remind me. One of the benefits of doing this protocol is that once they leave the office, the work isn't done. They can continue on, uh, doing that on their own to continue to reach out and make contact if they so desire. So, any questions about what I've shared so far? Wow.
0: <laughs> I, that is just, so, you know, this is now a step, a level beyond, I think, where uh, we have been in our understanding of near-death experiences and afterlife uh, communications uh so far we've just uh expected these things to happen spontaneously you know we know that they heal grief uh or uh they contact someone such as um Isabel and uh, you know the, the, she can act as a third party uh in uh contacting you know people whose 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 energy is still alive Isabel's going to explain this later to us uh, how 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 this all works from a scientific point of view but um Uh, It's just, you know, and that that just that contact alone can be very healing. It it reminds me of a near-death experience that I'm aware of. It was a Nazi prison guard who was, uh, you know, obviously just consumed with the guilt that he uh, felt from what he had done uh, during uh, World War II. And as a very, you know, as a concentration camp uh, guard... And, you know, we think of these men as monsters, but they're really just men. I mean, he's just a man who's conscripted, conscripted, if I have that word right, uh, you know, forced to go into the Army um, and uh, put into that uh, position and felt uh, that he, he couldn't say no. Um, he felt that he had to do what he had to do within uh, the framework of the Army and yet uh, had to do uh, horrible things. Uh, he had a, uh, near-fatal heart attack. And during his near-death experience, he actually encountered many of the victims, uh, of, uh, that he had, uh, you know, was responsible for killing, uh, during uh, World War II. And astonishingly enough, uh, they told him that they forgave him and just that experience uh was very healing to him and it really transformed his life but this 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 connection this ability to contact um your let's say your abuser or your fallen comrades or the victims uh you know that of of crimes, etc. It's not just limited to that, and uh, I was hoping that Isabel could talk about a time that uh, she actually contacted a man who was in coma, that, you know, so uh, there's many different ways uh, that we can use uh, this channel. Um, uh, If if you could share that with us,
1: Isabel. Yes, Mervyn, I'll be happy to do do so. And I also have the permission to share the story of this man. Um, I, I just want to b- briefly, before I, I tell the story, uh, talk about the specific technique that I use as a as a psychic medium. Uh, most psychic medium work either face to face or over the phone, so they have their client, their sitter, uh, either right in front of them or they speak to them because of the very nature of the work and we'll talk about that a bit later about how uh we uh we perceive the information uh about everything um, related to the person uh, I I personally believe that um, it is easier to be separated completely isolated from the sitter uh or from the client in order to give the best reading and in doing so I am trying to uh, as a scientific medium, uh, uh, to, to be as close as possible as a double blind, double blind setting, uh, that would, that would occur in any experiment that is done in a controlled environment scientifically. Of course, my readings are not done in a controlled environment, but this is ha- ha- I mean, as close as I can get. So, what I do is actually I, um uh, when I do a reading, I don't do readings face to face, I don't do readings on the phone. I only do readings by myself on my own and the only thing I request from the sitter is um that the fact that they want to have a reading with a person who's deceased and the only information that I get from them is the relationship. So it's a friend or a son or a mother and, and I work from, from that point and, and nothing else. So to go back to the story I get contacted by this lady who is a friend of uh, this gentleman who is in a coma. I don't know where he is. I don't know on the planet. I don't know why he is in a coma. And I'm asked to try to see if I can communicate with him and get information from him because they are desperate to know if he's okay. Uh, even though he is in a coma, Um this person actually had a very severe uh, brain tumor that was very aggressive. And he was in the deepest coma, uh, I mean, as possible and uh based on on that unique information that that they want to have a reading with this person i um usually meditate and um and i somehow get connected and we'll go into the process later i guess in the conversation um and i started to feel uh him and and feel as if i was with him in his bedroom, in the hospital room and I started to receive information from him. And um the the idea of, of uh the work that I do is of course I always ask my my dead people or my people who are alive but who are not capable of communicating uh verbally uh or any other way consciously is to give me some valid information that I can share so that their loved ones uh know that I am indeed uh really in connection with him, and uh it's not a figment of my imag- imagination, or I'm not making this up with my mind or the left part of my brain and so he started to give me a whole lot of very precise information about uh the first actually the first thing that he told me he he told me uh that he wanted me to talk about the cat, and so what I do when I do these type of readings is that i I write down. On an email that I prepare for the person that is going to receive the, uh, the reading, I write down, I'm sitting on my computer and I write down as things come to me. So that's what I wrote. I wrote, you know, he wants me to talk about the cat and then he wanted me to talk about his hospital bed that had something at the bottom of it that looked like a uh, toilet uh, bowl. and that, It didn't make any sense and that's the thing. Most of the time, uh, when, when I do a reading, the information that comes to me makes absolutely no sense to me. And that's how I know I'm on the right track. Because if it makes sense to me, that means I'm trying to to analyze too much. If it doesn't make sense, that means that it's fine. I'm just getting the raw information and that's all I need because that's I'm just, like you you said, Melvin, I'm just a conduit, like the third party that will just pass on, you know, the message.
0: So you're saying that this information makes sense to the other person and that's what's very validating about it. It not, it, it's not It's not you. If it makes sense to you, then it might have just come out of your mind. But when it doesn't absolutely. make any sense to you, it, it, it's, it's coming from uh, the actual source.
1: Correct, because it's the raw information, the pure information that hasn't been altered by my own interpretation. And uh, so I, I received a whole lot of information that I, of course, uh, transmitted to uh, the friend of the family and uh one of uh, the pieces of information that was very interesting is that uh he kept I kept hearing in my mind Tuesday Friday Tuesday Friday and I had no idea why he he would say that but I just wrote it down and I you know Tuesday Friday it uh, turns out that when his wife read the reading because this was not even ordered by his wife it was ordered by a friend of the family she actually was kind enough to uh give me some feedback about the entire reading and on that particular, uh, uh, part of the reading, she said that's what really struck her because that was the day they were living, uh, um, she was living far from the hospital because he had to be transferred to a very specific hospital for, for his condition. And she could only go see him on Tuesdays and Fridays. And somehow he was able oh, to wow. relay yeah. information to me. Uh, and that was for her the main validation that You know, he knew, he knew that, that she was here, and for her, that, that, you know, that it made her feel at peace that, you know, when she was coming to visit him, he was, he was really there with her, even though he was not there with her, if you see what I'm saying. Right,
0: she was able to perceive. Just like we, we now know that patients in coma, uh, are very frequently aware of uh, their environment, and it's routine now in hospitals, uh, to talk to, uh, comatose patients as if they're right. hearing everything, because so often they are.
1: Right, absolutely. And, uh, his nonverbal, um uh, conditions uh, didn't, uh, prevent him to talk a lot. He talked about his music, that he wanted his music, that his room was just bare and he couldn't stand that. He, Told me that uh, he described the room to me about you know where where the windows were and and who was treating him and that he almost died and they had a coat uh, they had a coat you know how do you call that a coat blue a coat red I don't remember Um, that during you know his stay in the hospital and they had to revive him he gave me so much information that uh, his family knew literally that the connection was real and most importantly that he was able to see in his own mind them and interact with them through me in a way. But once the reading was done, exactly like uh, Dr. Uh, Smith said, they didn't need me anymore because they knew the connection existed and they knew they could do it themselves because now they had the, the confirmation that Okay, now we can, we can, we can connect directly with him. And now his wife is actually having vivid dreams of, of him. Uh, they actually, uh, they have, they have six children and one of the, one of the children is actually listening and he- hearing and listening to her dad talking. They, that's his his voice in the house. A week ago she posted something again on, on, on my, uh, group on Facebook and this happened like three years, four years ago now. So they are now in direct connections, and since then, of course, uh, he's passed, unfortunately, but, so not even beyond, beyond the coma, beyond death, he's still communicating.
0: Wow, so he's amazing. still, he's still communicating, even though he's passed out of, out of this reality, he's still, uh, what is, he still exists, uh, in the, the universal consciousness, or, you know, a- explain that to us.
1: Well, for to me to, I, I, want, I want to place everything that has been said so far into the, con- the context of science. So, uh, I'm just going to give it an example. If we take every event of our life, every moment from, for example, the time we're, we're born to the time we die, when we bought a pound of tomatoes yesterday, or we we'll repair our car today, or we'll be healed tomorrow, thanks to Dr. Smith's uh, uh, protocol, all this, all this is information. It's a piece of information. And if you take every single piece of information of everyone, of every single creature, of every single thing on Earth, in our solar system, in the galaxies, in the entire universe, you've got a collection of information, which is our universal consciousness. It constitutes If you want, if you will, it constitutes a information-theoretic universe. And all this information of us is literally embedded, encoded in the fabric of the universe. Um, And and the law of it, one of the most important laws of physics, particularly in quantum mechanics, is uh, the law of preservation. Information is always preserved. Never dies never goes anywhere. It's preserved. Even, and I I mean, I'm going to say that jokingly, but it's it's a truth. It's a scientific truth. Even, for example, with black holes, you know, those are nasty beasts in the universe that are supposed to swallow everything, even light. Even black holes cannot swallow information. Information is actually preserved on the outskirts of a black hole. So information is what is preserved in the universe. And information, again, it's you, it's me, it's whatever we do, it's whatever we've done, and it's whatever we will do. Which means it includes the time you were born, the time you were passed, and the time you're right now alive and listening to this radio show. So, as, as you, me, and everyone being inform- information theoretically embedded in the universe, it makes sense that everything can be accessed because it's already there. Physicists say that time and space have, have all been created. They're all spread out within our universe. And because of that, every single moment, every single event being information is already out there. So it's up to us to decide to tap into that information. And there are ways, there are protocols, there are techniques. Sometimes, like you said, it happens spontaneously. But we can also train our brains to do so. And, uh, there are many different techniques, like, uh, the technique that Dr. Smith is doing, the technique that you do, Melvin, and, uh, there's, you know, psychic mediumship, uh, controllable note healing, any kind of technique that will allow our brain to be used in a different way, in a more richer way, and I will let you maybe talk about that, about the difference between the left brain and the right brain in our mind-brain unit, and that's how we can really tap into this information that is the universal consciousness.
0: So, you know, I, I, I've got to add to this that Michael Shermer, you know, who we think of as the super skeptic and, uh, you know, pooh poos any kind of psychic phenomena, but he actually wrote uh, in Scientific American uh, just a few months ago um, precisely what you just uh, reviewed, uh, is that he considers that the human personality is information, And as such, then, uh, it it exists uh, in this uh, universal consciousness, uh, information, uh, uh, you know, as Paul Davis, uh, the theoretical physicist, said, that sometimes it's through science that we will come uh, closest to God. Uh, He's, uh, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, who proposed the the information theory uh, that uh, information is the substrate of the universe. And that the laws of physics, uh, then, uh, uh, depend on that. And then, uh, material reality then depends on information and the laws of physics, not the other way around. You know, the current paradigm, of course, is that material reality came first. And then, uh, right. you know, all of these other things, uh, including consciousness, uh, came from it. But, you know, now we're starting to understand from a scientific viewpoint that, uh, consciousness came first. And uh, all of what we call reality, uh you know, came forth from that. I, I wanted to go back to something that Dr. Uh, Smith said uh, I think really um, uh, fits right in here. Uh, he was talking about all the different ways – that we can tap into this, uh, this information bank, if you like, uh, remote viewing, for example, where you go into the information bank and you come out with a very specific piece of information, which is, you know, what is, uh, uh, the, uh, identity, uh, of a, uh remote site uh you know landscape feature or um uh you know something or person or whatever that's otherwise completely concealed uh from the viewer well uh, you know you've just explained it uh isabel' We're, we travel into the information bank and we come back with a there in that case a very tiny uh piece of information. You know, I I just uh, wonder, uh, Doctor Smith, if if you could uh, go into that a little bit uh, deeper now. You know, now that we sort of have a, a better understanding of how all this fits together.
2: Yeah. So I like the idea of the information bank, and as a therapist, what I'm wanting to do is extract truth from the information bank that will allow the patient to rewrite their narrative of their core belief system, So if they have a core belief system that because my uncle molested me and I liked it, I should feel bad about that, or there's something wrong with me, or what I want doesn't matter, or what other people want matters more. So all of those would be possible core beliefs that a person would begin to think, and then as time goes by, those just get reinforced more and more and more. So when we're able to have a, what I call a fair witness, or somebody that's in the, in heaven, for example, or the space between this life and the next life, the life between life, if I could get a fair observer to show up at the session with us, excuse me, and then share with the person that I'm working with that that belief system that they have was never true, and it never will be true, And they really trust this person. Say it's a grandparent that was around when they were a kid and they really felt safe with them. The grandparent, because they're walking in that information bank every day, they can absolutely extract the information and share with the person I'm working with. And it's not its not coming through me. It's coming directly to them. And all I'm asking them to do with a few words is just describe to me
1: what their experience is as we're going
0: through this process. It's it's so extraordinary what uh, you're describing, Dr. Smith, but I have to tell you that it resonates with me on the very basic level that we all struggle with. You know, you're working with extreme examples, of course, and, and uh, you know, Isabel is is as well, you know, a comatose patient, or someone who's lost a loved one. Um, you know, a uh, soldier who's been traumatized uh, in battle. But don't all of us have this issue where we have that inner voice that says you're not good enough, or that inner voice that says that you're not loved, or we grew up uh, never uh, being told uh, that we're important, that we're special, And, and then that creates a narrative in our mind. And the work that I'm currently doing with meditation uh is very similar to uh what you're describing Dr. Smith is that um taking someone into the meditative state um, taking a, a page from uh the Quaker uh religion uh where they uh you know hold themselves in the light so it's a place it's a safe place uh, such as you create for your therapist in which it's filled with unconditional love and non-judgment and then in that space they can start to look at their own personal narrative and they can start to address issues like uh how come i'm always hearing that you're not good enough you're not good enough and you're absolutely right that uh sometimes they need to then contact some other family member someone someone else uh you know a, a high school coach or whatever uh who can uh help them to rewrite their narrative and and uh, i mean you don't you work with uh you know all types of patients is is what I'm saying resonating with you is this is this uh you know do i do I have it right i guess i'm
2: asking it, yes exactly That in the past, it would be me as the therapist confronting their core belief using either metaphor or maybe mindfulness or some form of cognitive behavioral uh rewriting their their script. But that would take so many weeks, and it would take so long for my words to become their words and then let that sink in. If they can hear it directly from a person they trust and know, and they're having that experience, it goes back to what Isabel was saying where they're having both the left brain cognitive experience in the therapy session as well as the right brain connected sensory emotional experience. And it's just a much full, much more full, rich Healing experience than doing it the other way or the old way,
0: right? That's you know. So uh, it it helps us to understand, I think, that why uh, ordinary meditation, you know, such as they have at the Universal, uh, the the Unitarian Church uh, in the neighborhood that uh, I live in, uh, you know, every Wednesday night, uh, it's ordinary middle class uh, uh, people are gathering for meditation and simply meditating can result in transformation and it's it's occurring to me that maybe uh it's because they're starting to confront some of these core beliefs they're starting to confront some of these uh toxic um ideas that we all have uh within us and finding a place to heal them I, does that you know does that make sense to you with, with either of you I'd it like to the both of you to, you know, because I want to bring this to, you know, the the ordinary person. <laughs> you know, is this something that uh, any of us can utilize?
1: Well, yes. I think we're all wired to to um, to use the information that is around us as a tool for many things, including healing, but but um, but as well in our everyday lives um, to calm us down when we are stressed. To the information that is around is is um i i personally believe that information is not only passive but it's also active so it works both ways we're it, in a way the way i feel it when i do my readings is that i go um halfway and then the information comes halfway to me so we kind of meet in the middle i don't have any explanation for this like scientific explanation that's the way i feel it but um um so yes i I believe that we all have um not only the capability of doing it um uh, but we we should learn how to do it from the very from the youngest age uh we are in my book i say that we are you know we, we teach our children to to i mean material to to survive in in our material world by you know learning skills and but we don't teach our our children how to survive. Spiritually, and I'm not talking religiously, I'm talking just, uh, you know, take care of our consciousness, take care of our, of of our higher, higher self in a way that makes us, um, comfortable being, uh, connected with our surroundings in, in, in a way that is not just physically and materialistically, but also spiritually. And again, I use that word with a very broad, uh, meaning. Um, I believe we should teach that to our children. And I actually, uh, I know that there are some schools, uh, and they're very rare, but there are some schools that actually include meditation, uh, in their program, and they have tremendous results. Uh, they, some other schools, same thing, very rare, use meditation as a form, as, I mean, as a form of, and you're gonna laugh, but it's true, as a form of punishment. This is not punishment. This is actually, you're not feeling well. You did something wrong. You need to realign yourself. And instead of going to the principal's office and writing, you know, a hundred lines of, I will not do this, they're sent to a room where they're actually sitting and they're meditating to calm them down and realize that whatever they do, uh, they're connected with everyone else. So it will have an impact on everyone else. And I think so just meditation
0: actually, alone, just, just you know, focusing on your breath, being mindful of what's around you, feeling that sense of gratitude uh, that I think comes to us naturally when, when we take a moment uh, to, to appreciate what's going on around us. Just that alone can then conjure up uh, this space in which uh, healing can occur, in which we start to understand that we're connected to everything. Is, is, is that, Absolutely. I mean, is is that, is is that, what, what about you, Dr. Smith? I mean, is that, is, is that,
2: is that right? I guess, I guess I'm asking. Yes, and it's more than just a conscious awareness of it. It's an experience. It's an undeniable experience. I can't tell you how many times at the end of the session, people will always say, wow, how did you do that? How did you create that? How did that just happen? Or they'll say, gosh, that, that was so real. How how did that happen? And I don't have the answer for it, but they generally want to come back and do some more. If, or, you know, another core belief, or another trauma, or, you know, just to reinforce the work that we've done.
0: Well, we know that it's real be from the work in remote viewing, which has been in the medical literature for 50 years, or when we uh, hear a scientist such as Isabel, and she describes how she contacted a comatose patient and got information from that patient. That, Of course, she would have no other way of knowing. Uh, she doesn't even know the person's name or where they live or anything like that. She's completely blinded to the people she reads. Uh, I wanted to share with you too, uh, some of the work I've done with meditation that I, I, I think just fits right in, uh, with uh, what we're talking about. Uh, I've worked, uh, with a number of ex-offenders, uh, really, uh, seriously violent criminals. And the one man, uh, comes to mind, uh, he was a neo-Nazi, uh, he had on his neck, uh, tattooed the lightning bolts, uh, that you get, uh, by, um, uh, shanking somebody uh as an initiation uh into uh the gang that he belonged in and so i mean this is a man uh who's clearly w- what we would consider to be uh you know antisocial uh, or even a violent uh, sociopath and yet uh when i worked with him and taught him just the basics of meditation first of all i was astonished that he wanted to learn meditation and, and that was one of the, the most important things uh, that, that I learned right there: is that it, whatever label society puts on these men, they, nobody wants to be that way. No one wants to be, a, you know, a violent sociopath. I, nobody, when they're a child, thinks, that "I want to grow up and, and shank people in prison." You know, this all comes as a result of, of trauma. And, you know, I'm not saying that from some sort of bleeding-heart liberal point of view. Uh, you, know, you know, obviously uh, this man was in prison for a good reason. Uh, and, and, that you know, he would be the first to tell you uh, that, um, you know, he has to pay some kind of consequence for his crimes. But nevertheless, in working with him, with meditation, just getting him to focus on his breath, And to understand what Isabel talked about earlier is that this reality is simply moment to moment to moment. And if we can pay attention to one moment at a time, that we can start to understand our connectedness with all of reality, which means with all other people. And after working with him really just for a couple of weeks, um, he started to cry. And he started to understand and feel empathy. He started, uh, there's a, a fancy name for it is Tonglen, uh, which is a Buddhist uh, meditative technique. But he started to actually feel the suffering that he caused other people. And then he started to understand himself and, and heal in ways that are, are strikingly similar to what you've described, Dr. Smith, um, in that he started to understand that the trauma that he suffered you know hurt people, hurt people, and right. it, it, you know that it, here's how he described it to me. He said, doc, it used to be that any time I got upset, then there would just be this flood of images and this flood of uh, of uh, you know of, of emotions, and then all I could do is lash out and hit somebody or want to hurt somebody really bad. And he said that after he learned to meditate, he slowed things down so he could look at one emotion at a time, and then suddenly he realized, wait a minute, you know, I'm grieving that the fact that I never had a parent figure in my entire life. I'm grieving for the fact that I was horribly abused as a child. And he can look at that in one tiny piece and use that to create transformation. And he was transformed uh he was a different man uh in the 5 weeks or excuse me 5 months uh that I spent with him uh than the man i first met and uh, he's primarily uh he said i never want to hurt another person again <laughs> and you know so uh, what you know uh, isabel tell us how all this can happen i mean tell us you know now i, I i'd like to uh, you know, what's going on here? I mean, uh, I know that you put a lot of this in your new book, and, and I, uh, l- I'd like to hear from you now. How is all this happening? How, how can just focusing on your breath or uh, the simple techniques well, uh, that do- Dr. Smith is doing in the office lead to such healing?
1: I Well, I, the, the focusing on the breath is part of the technique. What it does, it slows down, and as a doctor, you probably talk about it better than I do, but I'll try to do my best but when you do is you calm down your 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 brain the, when you when you breathe slowly and listen to your breath and focus on your breath, your mind focuses on that and 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 in in doing so uh stops gradually uh being attacked by the relentless left brain let's let's talk track for a second so we have a mind-brain unit that is schematically uh, divided in two parts. Left brain is the logical brain, the, the survival brain, the brain that helps us do what we do every day, go to work, plan, uh, for the future. That's, that's our left brain. That's the, that's the troublemaker. And we have our right brain, which is, which is our, our more like, uh, musically inclined, uh, the, 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 the brain that is all about, um uh intuition, feelings, emotions. Um and and when we when we breathe, we tend to calm down the left part of our brain, the brain that wants to analyze everything, that wants to find answers for everything, that wants to take control of everything. And we tell we tell our left brain, come on, okay, now we understand we have knowledge here, but take a step back and let us be in that, in the moment for, for, for just, just, just a couple of seconds so that we can enjoy the fullness of what's around us. Because what the left brain does is it restricts tremendously our reality. It, it, it takes, it takes just a few bits of information, uh, amongst the billions of bits of information we're bombarded with every second. It takes only a few bits and, and and that left brain creates our reality. And that's all. And that's it. And everything that is, you know, beyond that left brain is not infected with it. And so so that left it,
0: brain is what, uh, uh, my friend Harold, uh, you know, he wants to survive. And so the only way he can think to survive is to hurt other people before they hurt him or what the the ordinary person uh you know the, the that's uh, going to work every day you know the, their survival they got to make it through traffic they've got to get to work on time they've got a boss that uh, they've got to answer to they they've got you know uh, uh bills that they've got to pay they've got a mortgage that you know and and this is what uh this left brain is you know the chattering monkey as i've heard it described is right. preoccupied with and, and and it's only of the of the five what, Three to five billion bits of information we process every second. You're saying this left brain, in order to survive, is just, you know, uses ten thousand or so of these, uh, of this information. Oh, uh,
1: per second, it's actually in the ten, Like, like, the entire brain every second processes fifty bits of information. Fifty. Per second. Which is nothing. Absolutely nothing. But, but, but you're absolutely right. The survival brain is the brain we've, that actually helped us, you know, to be who we are and where we are today as a species. So it's, it's a, it, we have to thank, thank this brain, this left brain for that. But now that we don't have to, uh, survive in a sense the way our ancestors, uh, had to survive in the wild or, or at the very beginning of, of, of uh, you know, our humanity, uh, we can we can give our right brain a little more freedom to roam around and and to grasp other things that are out there that are completely readily available that we've never tried to 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 catch because we didn't need that to survive. Now that the survival is covered, we have plenty of time and plenty of space to uh, get much more information, and in that information. Uh, you know, we, this information actually can change everything from, from healing to, to, uh, uh, feeling empathy when we never felt it. Because, like you said, our left brain was preoccupied by survivors. Now we don't need to do that anymore. So, the technique is calming down the left brain to let the the right brain, uh, take over for a little while. We can't let right brain take over all the time, otherwise you we, would be completely Overwhelmed by everything, uh, it's too much information, too much stimuli, too much too many colors, too many sounds. That would be way too much. But for the time being, like like people who go through an NDE, they see much more vibrant, uh many many more vibrant colors and and the sounds are richer. Oh, absolutely! What, I've heard
0: uh, children many times tell me that uh, when they were in this sort of left brain reality or this universal consciousness um that we all apparently are connected to uh that they saw colors uh, that they have never seen before so somehow uh when we slow down and we in this meditative process or we use some of the techniques uh you know that uh, Dr. Smith is talking about a skilled therapist or whatever uh, somehow helps us to convert and uh, use a different area of our brain And I want to ask, uh, Dr. Smith, does does EMDR do any of this? Um, You know, I've read discussions of EMDR, and I can't quite get my, uh, you know, understanding. I know it somehow affects brain function, but uh, does any of this uh, fit in with EMDR or the techniques that
2: you're using? It does. It's uh, the physical part of EMDR uses bilateral stimulation, generally from either creating eye movements left and right, shifting them back and forth, left and right, or some kinesthetic cultures that you would hold in your hand, and they would alternately pulsate one side and then the other. And when the person has their eyes closed, it stimulates left brain and then right brain and left brain and right brain. And it does that in a, in a balanced way to where the, the local material left-brain world can not necessarily run away with the show, so the right brain is also being stimulated in the non local spiritual or sensory world, and it's actually creating like an equal playing field, if you will, so it gets the non local spiritual an opportunity to have a larger voice so and and then anything is possible in that moment when that when that experience shows up and I keep saying show up, it's already here, but it's our experience of it, like when we have a afterlife connection, like we have this idea that I've called them on the phone and they've answered. Yeah. In real in reality they were already there. They were already available. It's just that we kind of focused in. And, well,
0: Isabel mentioned and, that earlier. It's it, it's sort of that uh, we go halfway, and then uh, to our surprise, this loving universe, uh, this loving consciousness that we're embedded in, uh, then uh, comes to us. Right. Uh, I, I'm just gonna I, I'm just gonna summarize what I've uh, gotten out of this last hour, and then I'd like uh, each of you two to uh, comment. But what I'm understanding is that. The science of it is that we're bits of the information embedded in a greater world of information, yeah,
1: absolutely um I okay, think there's no uh, time
0: there's or time space time. in this uh in that just contacting this, however we do it uh is healing, and I'll give you, each one you has got thirty seconds yeah Jeff well, first,
1: science, guess. Today, think, uh, uh, science today i think science today I think proves that uh, this is the case. Uh, a year and a half ago, they were very happy to discover in that, that quantum mechanics and relativity could finally probably meet somewhere when they realized that information that we thought was going to be lost in a black hole was actually never lost. So information is definitely what is always preserved, and we are information. So in that sense, uh, we, we never die.
0: Well, let's, I want uh, Jeff to, uh, uh, w- you, you have the
2: final words, Jeff. <laughs> well, I love the analogy of just being a drop of water in the ocean. In that place, we do have access to everything. When we can somehow look outside the membrane of the drop that we are, uh, we can overcome our traumas. We can rewrite our core narrative negative life scripts, and we can experience healing. And that's that's something that we can maybe get some coaching from, a therapist or a life coach, and then begin to learn to do that on our own and share it with others.
0: Beautifully said. By the way, um, uh, Isabel uh, works with theoretical physicists, uh, so uh, when when she's speaking of the science of this, uh, she knows what she's talking about. But that was certainly beautifully said. Uh, we're, we're drops of water in an ocean of consciousness. Many people that have the near-death experience have told me that.